Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and trying to guess which crisis is going to envelop us all first. Today... Healthcare is in crisis, but what is anyone actually doing about it? And secondly, where are we at when it comes to climate change policy? Joining me this week, we have writer, researcher, PhD candidate, host of the Red Surgeons podcast, and most importantly and interestingly to me, soon-to-be Family Feud Canada contestant Riley Yesno, high game show icon. Oh my god, from the game show icon themselves. I'm so excited. <laughs> Next, we have Drew Brown, editor-in-chief of The Independent. It's very nice to not be the only Atlantic Canadian in the room. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. I am always happy to bring back up to other token East Coasters. Hailing from Saskatchewan, a communications officer in research and analysis with the Council of Canadians and the host of Unmaking Saskatchewan, and also a first-timer on the backbench, we have Sarah Burrell. Great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Right now, we're seeing that our healthcare systems are strained, if not broken, right across the country in many, many ways. Justin Trudeau has a responsibility to sit down with premiers and find a solution. I spent a fair amount of time thinking about healthcare over the holidays between visiting a family member in hospital and catching up with a bunch of old friends in Nova Scotia who work in the healthcare sector. There's no denying that our healthcare system is in crisis. Between extremely long wait times in emergency rooms to a lack of family doctors to severe burnout among medical professionals and staffing shortages, it's clear that there's not just one major problem, there are many major problems. What was laid bare during the pandemic has only gotten uglier since. And many of us have known this for a long time that our healthcare system is in crisis, especially those of us that live in or have connections to rural and remote parts of the country. But those of us who live in urban centers are catching up and finally seeing some of the cracks in the system. The provinces, who administer and deliver the majority of healthcare services, say they want more money from the federal government to fund the care that they provide. The provincial premier has even launched a public awareness campaign about it. Federal funding has fallen to just 22% of the cost of healthcare in Canada, and it continues to decline. Provinces and territories are doing their part, but we need the federal government to restore funding now to keep our systems strong. But the federal government has said that they'll withhold funding until they can see a plan that actually addresses the structural problems in healthcare and shows accountability for where the money that they provide is going to go. Quite frankly, one of the only levers I have is saying, I'm not giving you this money with no conditions. I will fully you know, participate in the funding of it as long as those real improvements are made. Trudeau has made it crystal clear that he's not going to hand out cash without strings attached. The provincial health ministers came together to meet with the federal minister of health back in December, but they were unable to come to an agreement. Minister Duco accused the health ministers of not coming to negotiate in good faith. Before the meeting was even over, before our discussions on these two essential items were even concluded, 
the premiers released a statement calling the meeting a failure. That is not exactly what we would call meaningful engagement. I know this is a lot to swallow, but let's try to understand where the power lies in improving our healthcare system, what we risk by not fixing it, and let's also try and see if there's any hope to be found. So first things first, uh, to kind of tackle the recent discussions that have been happening surrounding healthcare. Riley, is Trudeau's tactic of withholding money from the provinces justified? Are there any other tools in his toolbox that he could be using instead? How do we feel about the statements that he made at the end of 2022 regarding healthcare? Healthcare is really terrible right now. That should not be surprising. I think it's been terrible for some time. Like we're talking decades of underfunding and like not addressing the structural problems in healthcare. So like maybe we're just seeing it come to a bit of a head now more than anything, as opposed to pretending this is an unprecedented thing, which is also why it makes it very frustrating that like they're in this political like gridlock as if there weren't a million things that could have been done before this point to stop us from getting here. So that is my gripe out in the open. The <laughs> about Trudeau and and the federal government though. I've oscillated back and forth on what I think would be the right thing to do here. I know scholars of federalism are probably just like shaking their fists all over the place being like you can't do this with strings attached that goes against the thing of federation. Blah, blah, blah. I am not such a hardline federalist lover myself, so I don't personally care that much that they're saying like, hey, we want to see outcomes here. And when I look at the the things that they're demanding, I, I don't think it's necessarily like they're asking for something terrible. At the same time, I just like want to give them all a shake for like not being able to work together and letting, you know, all people just sort of suffer on behalf of their politicking. It's very the John Mulaney bit where he's pretending to be his college asking for money uh, is what it reminds me of. Like, give me some money. They said, hey, John, it's college. You remember? I said, yes, of course. And then they said, how did they phrase it? Then they said, give us some money. It's interesting because, like, if you look at the history of healthcare funding in Canada, most of what we would consider to be part of our universal healthcare system now comes from provinces setting up either like a provincial health insurance system to cover initially hospital care and then later on physician care. And I think, like, the amount of money actually that the federal government has provided, like, if that is the number that we're at, has kind of crept downwards because originally there was like a sort of 50 50 cost sharing scheme. But I think the federal government is always looking for ways to download costs for certain things onto the provinces. So one thing that Trudeau has been criticized for of late is not having met with all of the premiers in some sort of like roundtable first minister's conference. He's sort of defended himself by saying, well, he's met individually with the premiers. So I'm wondering, Drew, from your perspective, do you see any problem with these sort of one-on-one negotiations? I think the premiers certainly want for there to be sort of sense of a group coming to the table and everybody bargaining together. What are maybe the benefits and drawbacks of premiers negotiating individually as compared to some sort of collective negotiation where all provinces and territories maybe can see like the same funding agreement struck? Because healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction, Canada effectively has just like 10 different miniature healthcare systems in each province. I think the idea for all the premiers to kind of negotiate collectively is because the one thing that they all have in common is we would like more money. Don't tell us what to do with it. We'll spend it on healthcare. Whereas from the federal government's perspective, they're not very happy with that particular idea. So instead, there's kind of like a divide and conquer. If you negotiate with each individual province on their own, you can start to sort of like set precedent that the other provinces will then be comparing themselves against. 
You might be able to reward certain provinces that play ball with the feds more closely. Whereas if they just cut like a blank check to everybody, then any sort of like policy outcomes they were looking for might disappear. The downside of this is that if you're a province that doesn't want to work with the federal government and you don't want to cut a side deal, but everybody else starts cutting side deals, your leverage decreases. This whole thing is really frustrating for a variety of reasons, but I think mainly because like this has been an ongoing problem for a while, at least since the 90s, like the federal government slashed healthcare transfers to the provinces. So services became underfunded and overstrained. Like we have more people, they're aging more, and there are fewer resources to serve them. So like it's kind of been coming in this direction for a while. It's just hit an acute crisis because nobody, I guess, anticipated that a crumbling system would be slammed with a pandemic that does not seem to end. It is a bit of like a stalemate over more money with no conditions for a system that's obviously not functioning, that nobody actually wants to do anything substantive about, except presumably let it break a little bit more and then fill the widening gaps with various levels of like private entrepreneurial healthcare, further entrenching the the two-tier system we already basically have. From a negotiating tactic, I get what the federal government is doing, and I'm not sure it's actually going to solve the problem in any meaningful way, although it will probably be a bit easier on the federal government's budget. Yeah. So I almost want to pick up on the note about whether this maybe could lead to a slippery slope uh, of introducing more two-tiered healthcare into our system, right? Because I think one way that perhaps, and you don't really see many people or any people publicly advocating for this in a really open way, I think because we still buy into this national narrative of like universal healthcare being part of what it means to be Canadian, even though it's never really been something that we had in a in a meaningful way that encompassed all things. Is there a world in which maybe some provinces come out of this, you know, attempt at negotiating with the federal government by saying, you know what, the federal government was unwilling to play ball. They were unwilling to fund our health care in the way that we needed. And so we're going to just do two-tier instead. Like, is that a possible outcome in some provinces, do we think? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would ever bill it as we're doing two-tier health care. But I can definitely foresee a situation where, particularly in a province like Ontario or Alberta, although even in this province as well, like, precisely because the system has gotten so dysfunctional, There's just sort of like a claim, like, we just need more people to do whatever, which gets translated as we need more private practices, we need more private services, we need more private elective surgeries, um, just as sort of like a way to deal with the problem. So I can definitely see a case where if this does not get sort of like resolved politically, if no agreement is actually reached to, to solve the problem, I could definitely see a few provinces just kind of going that route anyway, right? Like, we just need to do what's necessary. I'm really glad that Drew brought that up. I'm a believer that there are a lot of problems that you can solve uh, by throwing money at them. But I don't think that healthcare is one of those things. You know, we need to be putting more money into the health system, uh, decades of neoliberalization and the introduction, uh, like in Saskatchewan, of things like lean, the offloading of administrative responsibilities has, has really like decimated the system. And we're still in a pandemic. We're seeing just a massive number of pediatric hospitalizations. We're seeing a huge lack of family doctors. All of those problems need financial infusions. But the real root problem here is not a financial one. It's an ideological one. Many, if not all of the premiers in this country fundamentally do not believe that healthcare should be administered by the state. They don't think that people are entitled to healthcare or any kind of public service, really. They believe that what entitles you to things is cash money. And if you cannot afford to purchase care, if you cannot afford to purchase things that any decent person would consider to be human rights, 
then you don't deserve them. You know, I don't believe in privatization in any way, shape or form. We need to expand the public sector. We need to have an economic and social system that is dedicated to serving the public and ensuring that people have access to their fundamental rights as human beings. And that means healthcare, and that means essential medicines and housing and food, you know, anything you need to live and live well. Those are public goods. But that's not the system that we're currently living in. Wow. I think it's, uh, you know, maybe the only way to save the system, it feels like, is to burn the whole thing down, right? The healthcare system that we have in Canada was, like, so piecemeal to begin with. I would argue that not every politician in power probably actively thinks that people don't deserve healthcare, but I think the parameters of what people who work within the system are able to imagine as possible are quite limited by virtue of, like, what the system is that they participate in, right? I definitely do think there are people who genuinely do believe on some level that privatization is the system that we should have that basically like pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have a job with health insurance like strap in get ready and I think for those people who are trying to work within the system who don't have that sort of ideological bent they're fighting against forces that are really like quite powerful and like fighting against decades of just inertia so what I'm kind of curious about is What are small solutions that are not like throwing a bunch of money at a problem, but things that are concrete that we can do maybe on a province by province uh, basis, depending on what sorts of challenges uh, are being confronted in different places? So to give an example of what I mean, like recently in Ontario, you know, it was announced that pharmacists are going to be able to prescribe medication for 13 common ailments was the phrase that kept getting used, basically to alleviate some of the pressure that is being applied in walk-ins, you know, family doctor's offices for people that are even able to access a family doctor and to also stop people from going to ERs for things that are not strictly emergencies but do require some kind of care. So Ontario was actually the second to last province to introduce something like that. That's a measure that had already been implemented throughout much of the country. Are there any other measures like that where they're not going to fix the healthcare crisis but they are going to maybe alleviate some of the pressure Because it's great to say, okay, well, this entire system needs an overhaul. Like, I'm inclined to agree. But at the end of the day, like, there are people that are literally, like, dying in ERs waiting to be seen. And any solution that can alleviate those problems, even in a a mild way, I think is something that we should try and pursue, you know, alongside some of those more structural solutions. So anyone have any hot suggestions for the premiers for the new year of small things that they could do better? I have been thinking about this quite a bit. As someone who's very fortunate enough to have a family doctor who is so busy, I've seen him in person once since the pandemic started, every other time it's over the phone. The Newfoundland Labrador Health System. Here, like, if you go to the doctor's office, because it's like a bill-for-service model, like, the doctors get paid based on how many people they see, not necessarily the quality of, like, care that's delivered. So, like, also, if, if you're going for, like, a routine question about, like, extending a prescription that you've had for years or whatever, you still have to, like, go to the doctor to get that extended so the doctor can then call the pharmacy. Um, so, like, that ties up the doctor's time, resources, and that part of it. Doctors here floated the idea of, like, a like team-based care, basically. So, like, if you go to, like, a, a clinic with, like, a really simple medical inquiry or whatever, you could just see a nurse instead of the doctor. Or if you had an issue with, like medications, you can just see a pharmacist instead of the doctor, which kind of like spreads out the resources, mobilizes the different resources and labor that is available. So you don't end up smashing the ERs. 
on the point about administration, this is not my idea. It's something that people in the healthcare system have been advocating for um, and saying that increasingly up to a third, if not a half of their time can be used on, on admin tasks as opposed to basically seeing patients and offering them care. And there are, is a very little funding available that isn't like moves in and out as opposed to being consistent to offer people like uh, contracts to be able to do just the admin stuff. But if we were to put money there, it doesn't take the 10 years of training or recognizing credentials and testing all of those things. That's work that a lot of people could do that they were saying, you know, folks uh, who are retired and worked in offices could be easily be able to come in, like pick up and do really quickly um, and takes a lot of burden off of actual healthcare practitioners so that they have more time to give to patients. And so uh, looking at hiring, not necessarily just of medical professionals, but of people who can come and help run healthcare services in, in different sort of ways would apparently, and I believe it, offer up a lot more time for folks. The other thing that is like really necessary is, yeah, like family doctors, because then you get prevention. Then you get people who are like able to get the medications they want. Right. Like you end up with a lot of people in the ER because they've had a problem go on for much too long because they have nobody to see. So you need to be like getting more and more family doctors, nurse practitioners and yeah, opening up pharmacists to be able to prescribe things for like, you know, if you've got like a bacterial infection, whatever. Right. Like being able to arrest these problems before a person ends up in the hospital, I think is like a really big thing because right now it's the hospitals that are are like severely burdened and it's the hospitals that are, are overflowing. And a huge part of that is just because you don't have any stopgap before that, right? There was, there was just not a place for people to go. And I think that the provinces, I, I know, especially like Saskatchewan, really need to be looking at what are their recruitment and retention tactics and how are you retaining these people? Because if you have people who are constantly cycling in and out of a province, if you are constantly trying to replace nurses, if you're constantly trying to replace doctors, like that is taking up time too. And that is taking away any kind of consistency that you can have in the system. So like really like devoting yourself to like keeping the graduates that graduate from your medical schools, that graduate from your nursing college colleges, keeping those graduates in the province, keeping those graduates there, keeping people over a sustained period of time, ensuring that you're doing everything that you can to make the place a desirable place to live, I think is really big. Mm -hmm. I was nodding so much when you were saying that because my top wish for the healthcare system, and this is, I think, people's problems with healthcare uh, and sort of what their top asks are largely are dependent on the issues that they see in their communities and that affect people that they know and care about. And so for me, even though I don't live in a rural area, like the thing that has always bothered me so much, and I'm so glad we're getting the opportunity to talk about it, is like retention and staffing shortages, especially in rural and remote areas. Like I have family members where the hospital that is close to them, literally the ER is closed overnight and often on weekends because they can't staff it. There are, I think more than one doctor that can't retire that work at this hospital because they are unable to attract, at least as of like two years ago, unable to attract and retain doctors to replace them, not just because the sort of position itself is unappealing and, you know, underpaid, but also because if a doctor has a spouse who like can't work in a rural or remote community because there's not uh, work for them there, like how do you make it an attractive or appealing place to live? Another thing, labor rights and pay, I think was so in the news when it comes to healthcare practitioners in Ontario specifically back in the fall. And I think just ensuring that nurses and doctors are able to get adequate pay rises to keep up with the cost of living, such a huge part of why this crisis feels like it's coming to a head right now is because 
just the burden that frontline workers had to bear during COVID, like the trauma that many of them experienced, it no longer feels worth it or possible to them to continue working in the jobs that they have. We've talked about how this healthcare crisis is affecting people in different parts of the country. One thing I want to focus on as well is Indigenous communities, because certainly for Indigenous populations, many of them, although not all, are remote and have to deal with these sort of considerations of how do you access healthcare when you don't live close to a major urban center. Uh, but there are also other issues that are particular to those populations. You know, we hear about women living in Nunavut, for instance, having to be flown out of their communities to give birth. We hear about services that are supposed to be funded equally to what settler Canadians would receive just continually not being funded. So what I'm wondering is, I guess, Riley, from your perspective, what is there that still needs to be done to support Indigenous people's health care in Canada, whether that's on reserve, whether that's in urban centres? And are there any lessons that we can take away from the provision of health care to Indigenous peoples and maybe apply to the wider challenges that we're seeing? Oh, yeah. Big one for sure. Like my family is from a community like 400 kilometers north of Thunder Bay fly in. And so um, when any of us have had to, you know, growing up had to get health care services, it was like you're getting flown either to Sioux Lookout or Thunder Bay. And I can't imagine the cost that that is even just in terms of, you know, that we don't put into actual infrastructure and doctors and all those things in communities that we spend on helicopters sending people elsewhere. And so like at a certain point, recognizing that like there has to just be investment understanding that you recoup that in the long term that nobody is willing to do because it would be substantial and they can get away with underfunding Indigenous communities and rural communities. So why wouldn't they? One of the other things that is really interesting in terms of community advocacy and community solutions that they're trying to push is like an uptick in Indigenous birth work programs and Indigenous doula programs. Like it's only one generation, like both of my grandparents were born in the bush by like traditional birth workers. And so within like literally one generation, the Canadian government made it such that 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 was not allowed, that they told it was not best practice, et cetera, et cetera. And so people had to leave their communities. And so now there has been this try and, you know, resurgence of trying to make sure that, you know, things like that can happen in communities and with better outcomes, because when you're in your home, in a place you're comfortable, surrounded by your family, you tend to, to you know, be less stressed when you're see- receiving healthcare. <laughs> so those are like uh, types of things that are happening at the gr- grassroots level that can also be invested in uh, as well. And I think that that's something that doesn't have to be isolated to necessarily just the reserve. Traditional medicinal practices, especially around mental health care is another thing. Like, it's a very Western thing to be like, okay, we're going to go sit in this office and like by ourselves and talk about everything that makes us sad. There's a lot of other sort of practices and solutions out there that just aren't appreciated in the same way and funded the same way. And leaning into community knowledge and especially like ancestral community knowledge, I think we would see really transformative results from that. And Indigenous people can lead the way. It's a new year, and we're trying something new on the backbench. We've heard from some of our listeners that the point of order segment has been, quote, confusing, that, quote, it's unclear what the joke is, and worst of all, that point of order does not follow Robert's rules of order. It's never a real point of order. (laughs) We love to listen to your feedback here at the backbench, so we're going to revamp the middle segment of the show, and we will be opening up the house to private members' bills. In the real-life House of Commons, private members' bills are an opportunity for members of Parliament who are not in Cabinet or Parliamentary Secretaries to propose legislation for discussion. This is going to be our opportunity for panellists to bring forward topics that they feel are important to address. 
So without further ado, I'd like to call on the honorable member from St. John's East to introduce a private member's bill. Perfect. I'm going to set the tone and ruin this entire project. (laughs) I mean, this is a very serious show. We're talking about very serious things. Everything is so fucking serious all the time that uh, I think we need a bit of like levity and good stuff. I have been thinking, like, what are we going to do with the $20 bills now that the queen is dead? I don't think they can put Charles on the $20 because I think that would be the end of the monarchy, which would be good, but we're not (laughs) going to do that. So I was sort of thinking instead, like, we need something to like get Canadians feeling good again, get everybody amped up, bring back a little like joie de vivre to the country that so desperately needs it. So I would like to propose in that spirit that we put the Toronto Raptors Chris Boucher on the $20 bill. I think he deserves it. I think we all deserve it, quite frankly. So that is my private member's bill. Be it resolved, Chris Boucher goes in the 20. All right. All in favor of Chris Boucher going on the $20 bill to replace Queen Elizabeth, say aye. I don't know who that is, but <laughs> I appreciate the honorable member, his his enthusiasm for it. So I am, I'm going to throw my support behind it. Aye. Anybody but Charles, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I don't know who that is either, but goodbye, Lizzie. We'll now hear from the Honorable Member from Spadina, Fort York. Thank you, Speaker. I would like to propose that we abolish John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, for continually increasing the police budget again and again and again, every single time, with like no evidence that it does anything for communities that we have, in fact, in the opposite, just a million reports about how terrible they are again and again and again. I say we tackle the problem at the root and abolish John Tory. All in favor of, I don't know what that would look like. I guess him not being the mayor anymore is really what we're talking about. All in favor of John Tory not being the mayor. Aye, aye. I like to imagine the abolition of a person just means they like disappear in a cloud of smoke. <laughs> Last but not least, we'll hear from the honorable member from Regina Louvan. Okay, so I am newly elected. This is my first time. I've never been on the backbench before. I don't know if I'll be reelected again. And so, you know what? I got to just swing for the fences and I got to put forward the kind of radical legislation that the people who put me on this bench uh, really want to hear. And so my proposal is land back. All crown lands restored to the nations that that land belongs to and all other private business, private cities, urban centers negotiate rental agreements and start paying rent on the land that they're occupying. So straight up, land back as soon as possible. All right. Well, this is the kind of thinking that we like to hear on the backbench that we will probably, unfortunately, not hear in Parliament anytime soon. All in favor of giving land back or paying rent to Indigenous communities if we don't give the land back. Aye, aye. Aye, aye. Wow, we're all agreeing today. (laughs) This is so fun. It's often difficult to find an entry point to talk about climate change. And personally, I find it hard to track news around the climate when it feels like the fight is just too big to tackle, change feels very incremental, and there always seems to be some other news story that takes the forefront instead. But as we move into this new year, I wanted to get us reoriented and up to date on the latest in climate action to see where things are at. How has the Trudeau government really been holding up on this front? How is our Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Guilbeault, who has his roots in climate change activism, been delivering on his mandate? And Canada recently held the COP15 conference in Montreal, which was a conference that was focused on halting the loss of biodiversity on this planet. And the parties at that conference actually walked away with an agreement to protect 30% of the planet by 2030. Any hope here? 
it's not really that clear. We've also been hearing some talk about just transition legislation by the Minister of Natural Resources. So let's do a temperature check on the fight against climate change in this country. First things first, Sarah, what have been some of the most notable moments on the climate change policy front over the past year for folks who maybe weren't following the beat super closely or have maybe forgotten some of what's gone on? So I think that one thing that really stuck out for me and indicated to me that Guibault is not necessarily taking his activist roots to heart was a proposal that he put forward and, and then backtracked on that the tailings ponds in Alberta in the oil sands, that possibly that water could just be dumped into the Athabasca River and that that was a possible solution for for this, this toxic water. And that was something that stood out because I was like, OK, if we're even having this conversation conversation when we're talking about like lands where the, the people who live there are like, no, no. And there's no free prior and informed consent. There's none of that. Like that really indicated to me that I was like, OK, this government still does not understand the gravity of the problem that they have. And then the other thing I think that that really sticks out to me is, you know, uh, just absolutely devastating is the fact that they're still uh, allowing the pipeline to go under Weds and Qua. And the RCMP are still occupying Indigenous territories. Like, this country is essentially at war against people who are trying to actually stop climate change, actually trying to stop fossil fuel infrastructure. So that's kind of where I'm at. And yeah, maybe we'll get this just transition legislation. But, you know, 2022 was not a year that that gave me a lot of hope. I'll focus on like the indigenous climate policy stuff, because like I know that that's something that the federal government has really liked to pat itself on the back about is stuff like they've announced like I think just recently $800 million or something for indigenous led climate conservation efforts. They were like, yes, good job us. And I think that's so funny because like, you know, as somebody who analyzes the budget for the indigenous commitments closely every year, they also gave half that amount, $400 million dollars to Indigenous-led resource extraction came out recently by CBC that they have spent, you know, just under a year, like $50 million on just policing the pipeline and logging. The numbers add up really quick to not feel as great (laughs) about that $800 million. And it's, I think, like, the thing that I ultimately come back to for all of this is just that, like, it's so typical. And what what else would I expect from like a centrist government, right? Like it's that, you know, they're they're going to do this thing to, that's supposed to make us feel good and make them feel good. And then at the same time, do things that like completely sweeping out the, the earth from under our feet. Um, and that's the thing with a centrist party in my mind is that like there is no middle ground on things like climate change if you're going to take it actually seriously. Drew, what about you? What were your uh, climate change highlights or perhaps more realistically lowlights of 2022? Yeah, it seems to be mainly lowlights on this file. I don't know. I sort of think of it in terms of uh, climate grief, right? Like we're all dealing with a grief that really is so immense that it's difficult to even register. Many of us are stuck in the denial phase of grief, which is quite popular. And uh, we'll probably only just like intensify as climate change becomes more and more obvious because the human mind is wonderful that way. The federal government, I think, is still stuck in the bargaining stage where if we make Alberta happy or uh, the Newfoundland provincial government, then uh, by 2050, this will all kind of just work itself out. This uh, It's a little bit demoralizing, admittedly. I mean, the biggest news from where I'm sitting is certainly is the approval of the uh, Beta Noor um, project offshore, which seems to be a compromise 
that will benefit nobody except ostensibly the provincial government and the oil industry that more or less seems to control it and the companies that, that will make bank off this. It, uh, it doesn't bode well. I mean, it bodes well in the sense that uh, we can sort of get a sense of like how things are going to play and that like all future oil projects will be greenwashed completely so that we can feel good about the clean oil that we're burning. (laughs) Wow. There's a lot to think about there. First of all, I think it's so funny. And it's really true that if you are against the oil and gas sector, people will paint you. First of all, it's a given that you're going to get accused of hating Alberta, which is just like, there are people in Alberta who don't support oil and gas. Like, it actually is not true that if you don't like oil and gas, you immediately are like, I want every Albertan to have no money. That's not how it works. But like, the broader question of like, that means you hate Canada. It's like, what? No. You know, of all the things to tie up our national identity in, like oil and gas seems like a pretty bad one. I'm also getting a good kick out of this notion that we're dealing with kind of the five stages of grief, but we're stuck on denial, which is the one that like guarantees it's the first one. It's literally the first out of the five. Like we need to we need to get at least where's anger? Like, we should get to anger seems to be the one that maybe feels appropriate. Some of us have tapped into the anger. I was going to say, I feel like on this show, I think maybe we're there. What it also reminded me of is, like, I don't know if any of you have watched Yes, Minister, like the British satire from the 80s. There's this one bit that I think about a lot where it's like just a good send up of British government. A lot of it's very applicable to Canada as well, where they talk about basically the four stages of dealing with a crisis. In stage one, we say nothing is going to happen. Stage two, we say something may be going to happen, but we should do nothing about it. In stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. (laughs) Stage four, we say maybe there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. Maybe we should capture the carbon from the oil sands that's being emitted in the process of extracting the oil. And I'm like, okay, but if you admit that the carbon being emitted is bad, then why are you extracting oil, which is going to be burned to emit more? Like, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it, right? It's like, don't fall for it. And the last stage is like, well, we say maybe we could have done something, but it's too late. And I think that that's where a lot of politicians are kind of bargaining that we're going to get to in 2050, that they'll be able to say, well, we didn't know. And it's like, no, we did know. I remember watching The Inconvenient Truth in 2006 when it came out. And like, literally, I feel sometimes like nothing has changed in the conversation since then. One thing that I want to circle back to, Drew, you mentioned briefly the automobile industry. And I feel like one thing that gets pointed to a lot is like, look at this, like we're taking initiative, isn't it so good, is the idea of electric cars. And the government of Canada is saying they're going to require 100% of car sales to be zero emission by 2035. We're going to solve climate change because the cars are going to be not running on gas anymore. So I feel like there's some very important pieces missing in the conversation about electric cars, namely, What is going in the cars and how are the materials for the cars being extracted? What's that doing to the environment? And also, depending on where you are in the country, how's your electricity being generated for the cars? So how do we all feel? I think I made it pretty clear how I feel about the electric cars conversation. But do other people have thoughts and feelings about this? Like, I don't really (laughs) personally—I just don't know that it's really should be a huge plank of any climate change strategy. I don't even know if it actually is a net positive. 
No, it's it's not. Uh, we like there should be by 2030. We should just not be manufacturing private vehicles at all. We should be investing in a public system of transit that goes across this country and that like focuses on trains and focuses on buses and focuses on moving people around. We do not need personal like every person does not need a personal vehicle. It's absurd. The other thing is that like Canada is brutally complicit in a horrific global mining system that exploits in. Indigenous people, not just in Canada, but all around the world. And lithium is not a renewable resource. You know, we do have some here that could be mined, but it's not a renewable resource. You're going to run out of lithium. It takes energy to extract that. And you are continuing on this this pathway of extractivism, right? Like the the point of of a just transition and the point of moving away from this is, is not to just simply like swap out oil and gas and live the same way that we're living. We cannot live like this anymore. It's not sustainable. It's not possible. And we need to have like an actual radical shift in the way we think about what it means to be alive. I mean, to come back to the sort of grief analogy, the, the electric cars thing is definitely a bit of like, it's a bit of magical thinking, right? If we, It's the one weird trick to fix climate change. If we just keep everything the same, <laughs> but replace fossil powered cars with way heavier battery powered cars, everything's fine. You don't have to think about it. Everyone gets reelected. Everybody's happy. It's okay. My personal vendetta against electric cars is that, like, you know, where the lithium that in Canada you would mine it is literally on top of uh, the Ring of Fire in northern Ontario, which is where my community is, and where the Matawa nations have said, or at least several of them have said, you know, for decades, absolutely not. It's one of the world's largest carbon sinks, one of the most, like, sacred, untouched pieces of land that we have. And they're just like, But, you know, electrification, baby, this is the way. And the North always gets screwed in these conversations of greenwashing. Like, when are we going to talk about, like, nuclear, for example? And, like, nuclear is not clean energy. Like, maybe, sure, in the production, you could say it is. It makes hundreds of thousands of tons of waste that the only way we can get rid of it is to bury it. And where do you think they're burying it? It's not in downtown Toronto. It's in Indigenous homelands, um, in watersheds, in, like, sacred areas. This is frankly why I avoid talking and thinking about the climate is because the second I think about it for more than like five seconds, it's apparent that the entire way that it is discussed by politicians and in a lot of news media as well is completely like, I don't use this word lightly, but delusional. We quite rightly have identified that there are a lot of problems. It seems not very apparent what the solutions are. I think we've gotten some hints at what maybe are some things that we could do that would actually be helpful. What are some things that you think are maybe within the realm of stuff that we might reasonably see that would actually address the problem? Like my top thing that is like, this is not going to solve the climate crisis, but something that it's absolutely ridiculous that we don't have it and would be not that hard to do, trains. Why don't we have trains? Love a train. (laughs) I think that the majority of the country, like the majority of the public has accepted what is going on, right? Like the, and and the the holdup is with government and a government that is deeply, deeply tied to the fossil fuel industry, deeply, deeply tied to global capitalism. Most people, like the, the majority of people polled in Canada want action, like real action on climate change. People have been going to their MPs and saying like, you need to put forward this legislation. And everything that we do get is going to be cut be because like, people scrape 
raped and fought and put pressure to get these kinds of, of legislation passed. We are expecting just transition legislation. So the, the two things that I'm looking for that, you know, if we see these things in the legislation, this is going to mean that like everything else will follow. The first is Indigenous rights and sovereignty. But what I'm looking for is like an immediate end to the RCMP occupation of Indigenous territories, an immediate end to the RCMP's war on any and all sovereign nations on behalf of the fossil fuel industry, and an immediate cessation of any and all fossil fuel projects that are currently ongoing without the free prior and informed consent of the nations whose territory those projects are illegally operating in, as well as a demand that the companies that have been illegally operating on these lands clean up the toxic mess that they've left behind. And then the second thing that this legislation needs to contain and and that we need to keep pushing for is an attention to the rights of migrants, and in particular, irregular migrants. We're going to see more and more climate refugees in the coming years, and Canada's abject failure to implement climate action before this moment is a large contributing factor to the fact that many places on Earth will become uninhabitable due to the climate itself or associated civil unrest. And so the country has this really profound obligation to ensure that all migrants have legal status in this country. Okay, so I love touting Indigenous people as the solution to everything because I truly believe they are. To give you some hopeful numbers, truly, and these are like these two stats that I always just like kind of repeat on my mind in a loop. Indigenous people are 5% of the population. They protect 80% of the world's biodiversity, as is. 5% of the population is doing like almost three times the work that every government in the world uh, can say that they'll do. Also, the Indigenous Climate Action found that in, I think it was 2020 or 2021, that Indigenous people protesting pipelines and dams and mining mitigated up to what would have been a quarter of North American GHG emissions by stopping those things. The work that Indigenous people are doing is more than any government. It is like immeasurable. And so the best thing that you can do, I think, as a citizen as well, beyond just like, you know, like making those those ideological shifts of like, you know, like we have to get to that place of anger, we have to do it now, tangibly support Indigenous people in their activism, donate to their legal funds, go and stand on the front lines where they need you to be, sign the petitions they ask you to sign. There are people already doing the work and it's a lot easier to feel like you can join a collective as opposed to just being like your individual self trying to, you know, use less plastic straws or do whatever you can, you know? There is infrastructure there, there is people power there and it's just a matter of finding it. This is something that is so far out of Canadian politics that it feels ridiculous to mention, but one thing that has been giving me hope lately, although somewhat affected by yesterday, the fact that a bunch of higher Bolsonaro's supporters stormed Congress in Brazil, is the fact that at least Bolsonaro did lose the election and Lula da Silva is now president again and is not going to clear-cut the Amazon in the same way. One of the first things Lula did was meet with indigenous leaders in Brazil and recognize like the stewardship that they have over that really, really critical territory as a carbon sink, as like a well of biodiversity. So some places in the world, good things are happening. Maybe it can happen here too. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when we've probably identified two more crises that we're going to try and get our panel to solve. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. 
I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Riley, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter as well, at Riley Yes No Maybe. If you want to hear more about Indigenous politics, you can check out Red Surgeons anywhere you get your podcasts. Drew, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Drewfinland, like the Iowa name, but with my name, but more and more on the independent.ca where I'm trying to uh, get back on my bullshit of writing regularly. And Sarah, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter as well. And unfortunately, I very recently got locked out of my original account. So I'm starting over fresh. Uh, they can find me at S-B-I-R-L-I-O-S on Twitter. And they can also find me on the Unmaking Saskatchewan podcast, which is a Harbinger Network podcast. And most recently in the most recent issue, uh, 50th anniversary issue of Briar Patch. Brazil is a dystopian black comedy film directed by Terry Gilliam, most famous for his role as a member of Monty Python, and starring Jonathan Price, probably not most famous, but famous to me for being in The Two Popes. The film does not take place in Brazil, nor is it related to the country of Brazil in any way, but instead is named after the song Aquarela do Brasil, which apparently was known to British audiences back in 1985. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noura Azrie and Tristan Capicone. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.